Welcome back to Lunchtime Legislation with Jack Squared. I'm Jack Muscatello alongside Jack Spiegel. Welcome back. This is a podcast where we will digest the most pressing political affairs, both domestically and around the globe. In this episode, we have a very special guest. She is a daughter of immigrants who was born on the 4th of July. She received her law degree from the University of Pennsylvania and is now running to represent Trumbull in Connecticut's 123rd House District. We're happy to welcome legal studies professor Sujata Godkar Wilcox to the show. Alrighty, so we're going to jump right into things. So thank you, Professor Godkar Wilcox, for being with us. Um, it's a true privi- privilege for us to be able to talk with you. So we're just going to start. Thank you for having me. Of course. So why why, why are you running again? For I know this is the third time you're running for this seat. What, what makes this time special? Yeah. Well, let me say, you know, why this is important to me in the first place is because um, I don't think we do enough of what's really important in politics, which is getting people engaged in the process. Um, And the one advantage we have in Connecticut is a community politics where we can actually knock on doors, have conversations, um, and get people involved in the process. I'm a big admirer of John Dewey for that reason, and I believe in participatory engagement. Um, And that process takes some time. So it takes some time um, when you have a name that people don't recognize. Um, And so, what you know, the, the first time around, which is in 2018, um, I'm, and it's also difficult to run against an incumbent. And so running against an incumbent who used to win by more than 25 points, percent d- differential, we brought that down to eight um, in 2018. And then in 2020, because of the pandemic, we really basically weren't able to have those same conversations or knock on doors. And even then, the gap was closed to 1.6, you know, so, so within... Uh, uh, 230 votes or so. And that's important because I think it's the right message. I know it's the right message for uh, for, for the district, um, for Trumbull, but I also think it's the right message for politics, you know, because it's a message about figuring out um, where there's room for reform. We're seeing a lot of um, hyper-partisan division, and that wasn't always the case at the state level, and that is trickling down from the national level to the state level. Um, and it seems like that's the direction we're going more and more. Um, and for me, you have to embody a different kind of politics. And so I knock on doors of Democrats, of Republicans, of unaffiliated voters um, to find out where where are those points of commonality? You know, where can we go forward? And most importantly, to get people you know engaged in the process. I mean, I care about things like political reform, things like fair districts, um, things like campaign finance, which we have public financing in our state, so that campaigns can be about issues and candidates and people can see that, you know, um, and, and I, I and I believe in a, a competitive district and I believe that our district is a competitive district. Um, and I think that's important because people feel like their vote matters. <laughs> they want to get engaged. And I can see, you know, over the years that people have felt more connected to me, to the campaign. Um, and so, you know, that's why I, we just have to keep going forward because we we really, I, I felt last time it was cut off. Absolutely. And so policy-wise, what are the most important issues to Trumbull voters, do you think? Yeah, there are a number of, of important issues. So one is making sure Connecticut is affordable. Um, so really using our surplus in a way that um, makes those who are most vulnerable um, able to live in their seniors, for example, able to live in their house. Public education to make sure that, you know, there are some fixed costs that schools face that create a kind of burden um, on the school system. And when that money is coming from the local district, there's, you know, there should be more funding or uh, support from the state. And we should, that, that the, the, the education cost sharing formula 
should be adjusted to make sure that the uh, that the towns that actually need that funding are getting it. And so some revision there, some also general fund at the state level to make sure some of those uh, costs are offset. Um, and then making sure, you know, every time I, I talk to voters in Connecticut, I talk about the Citizens Election Program, which most people don't even know that we have, which is a public financing program. Um, and a majority of candidates actually take public financing where you're raising a small amount of money and then getting money um, that's publicly supported from the state. And there's a cap on that. And that's the most important thing. Um, so for me, for example, I didn't accept a contribution over $100. Um, and we were able to you know, raise that amount fairly quickly and then get the matching grant from the state. And what that means is campaigns are about, uh, about issues. And when I go to the door, and the first thing people usually ask is, oh, how, can, how much money do you need? How can I support you? And I say, no, if you want to help, I want you to be part of the campaign. And that's incredible. I mean, that, that is a really important opportunity that I think people don't realize. That's what public financing gives you, the opportunity to say, now you can be involved in the campaign. That's how you can help, right? It's not just a matter of writing a check. And then it's not about who has the most money. It's really about, you know, who is the most persuasive when it comes to um, the actual issues and um, their actual approach to, to, to politics and political engagement. Right. You brought up an interesting point, too, about public finance, because even just on the national scale, everything is you know, blown up by donors and corporations spending as much money yes. as they possibly can. And lobbying is huge. It's been that way for a while, but it's really bad, uh, especially now. And I just kind of want to hear like your thoughts on, I guess, in general, like campaign challenges you've had. Like, have there been any like, um, I guess, specific instances where you felt like you're kind of at a disadvantage or uh, you can't quite get the like what you're saying now, um, that message across effectively to your audience? Yeah, you know, the the first thing is um, there's so little trust in government, you know, and so the, the first question always is, you know, what's in it for you when you're doing this? Why are you really doing this? And I think it's hard to convince people that you're actually committed to an ideal. Um, people just don't believe it. Um, but they do believe it when you actually talk to them and then start having conversations and engage. And for me, that's why being at the doors is so important. Having conversations in the community is so important um, because every not everybody, but a lot of people wind up saying the same thing. You know, we care about bipartisan um, efforts, like we're reaching across the aisle, and 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 yet we're, politics seems to be going the opposite direction. So if you know a majority of people are saying that, and politics isn't changing, then where's the reality? And that's what leaves people confused. Um, and I think the only way around that is for people to actually get to know you at the doors. And that's why I think those numbers have closed. <laughs> you know, because getting having those conversations, talking to people, and letting them know. You know, this is something I've committed my career to, <laughs> being, a, being a professor of constitutional law. These are the ideals. I mean, the framers, for example, and I say this to my students all the time, the framers had very serious ideological differences and were still able to compromise and write the Constitution. So it's not like it's impossible. It always feels like it's, imp it's impossible to find some common ground. It's actually not. Um, and when you sort of step outside of media and you step outside of broader narratives on what's happening nationally and you start actually talking to people in districts, you'll realize that like what people's party affiliation is, it doesn't actually, it's only one factor in what actually motivates them to vote, right? And that narrative has been co-opted though. So it feels like that could be the only thing that motivates them to vote, right? But that's not really true. I mean, so when you talk to people, you realize that they understand that a candidate, even in their own party, is not gonna agree with them 100% of the time. They wanna know, right? There are some issues they may be committed to, but they just, they wanna know that somebody is actually listening and is actually looking for room to compromise not just saying that they're going to do that and, and finding some avenue for common ground. 
you know, um, I think that's what most people are looking for. And so that, but but sort of convincing people of that, I would say, has been a challenge. Um, there are also challenges coming from door knocking. So I got bit, I, I was bitten by a dog, oh, wow. you know, and, and now whenever I see a dog, you know, I think, oh, never, I'm just going to skip that. Because, you know, right. um, and that happens when you're, you know, there's just the kind of challenges of, of walking around in the community. But also I would say with my name, you know, people didn't know how to pronounce it. Um, now people know me. And, and I also think that's a, itself a success that, you know, they can say Sujata, they, they see me and they recognize me. And even, you know, when we had, were wearing masks, people recognize me with the mask on. And, and I thought that takes a lot of time and effort. And that takes a lot of, again, relationship building and doing things in the community. So like being invested in the community, um, which I am with, you know, for uh, I work with the high school students on constitutional politics, um, with the Trumbull Rotary, you know, that also gets gives people the sense, okay, you must actually be committed um, to this ideal. And you know, and I, I always think you just let people decide. You you have to sort of put yourself out there and let people decide this is who you are. Right. And I just want to piggyback a little bit, going a little bit national just for a second. Like you really brought up a good point about the polarization in our country yes. right now. And I think to kind of go national scale, we saw uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson's nomination uh, be approved earlier this month and in, in a very partisan dividing vote with 53-47. From a constitutional perspective, what are your thoughts on the fact that the court is becoming very politicized, even just in conversations that justices are having kind of publicly now. Uh, we see that with Clarence Thomas and his wife, um, you know, conflicts of interest there with having a sort of clear cut way to interpret law. And now it's becoming political. Just sort of what are your thoughts on all that? No, absolutely. I mean, it, it it's it's troubling and, and it's very problematic because it's the one branch of the three branches that's supposed to be entirely disconnected from politics, isolated, right? It may not entirely disconnected because they will be reading the newspaper, but isolated from the kind of political pressure that the other branches um, would then be subjected to, which is the basis of a lifetime appointment, right? Is so that you, you take that kind of political pressure off. The fact that people see the court as perhaps more politicized than the other political branches is a big problem. Um, and I think that people should keep their eyes on the chief justice because chief justices understand that people look back on their tenure and their court, and they talk about their court. Um, and I think Chief Justice Roberts, and which is why he sometimes shifts from siding with the majority and the dissent, um, I think he understands that the court is perceived in a way that's, that um, is, is a politicized, which is really a problem for its, its own legitimacy. I, have, I remember in class now, in the past couple of years, for the first time hearing students talk about justices as Democratic and Republican. I never, I've never heard that before. Um, and nobody really pays attention to the, not pays attention, but nobody talks about the appointment to which president appointed a, a particular justice. And now that's the first thing they say, you know, who, who appointed you? Because oftentimes you're, t and, and, and not that there aren't differences on the court, there are. And we, in fact, have a lot of debates in constitutional law, but those debates are based on judicial philosophy, right? And that's fine. If you're, if you're focusing on a difference in judicial philosophy, um, that's different than thinking of the court as politicized no matter what the issue is and when they're sort of, um, you know, when they have a personal uh, stake in, in the issue, they're, they're going to now sometimes break from their own philosophy. And that's the hypocrisy, right? And that's, that's where, and this is where judicial activism can happen from either conservative or liberal justice because it's, it's just a matter of sometimes breaking with 
uh, a, a judicial philosophy, right, to be more, to, to, to not align with a principle that's in the Constitution and then to be more activist. And that has happened on both sides of the aisle. But though, at least those ideological disagreements are, are, are actual constitutional disagreements and disagreements about how we approach the Constitution. You know, should we be very strict about looking at the framers' intent or should we think about this as an evolving doctrine? But what's happening now um, and, and also just in terms of the appointments, you know, where people are walking out um, and, you know, only Mitt Romney was there standing, standing up. I, I just think that this it, you've created a kind of sense that there's there 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 is this kind of hyper partisanship around the court. I'm not sure the court is happy about that, you know, because they want they want that that sense of legitimacy back. So you talked about how for the first time recently you have heard students and people called justices, Democrats and Republicans. We know that for the basis of checks and balances that the president nominates uh, a, a judge to be a justice, the Senate confirms, and th- that was based on the fact that there are different checks on each branch of government. Right. But what effect do you think that has on the politicization of the court? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I, I mean, I, I think... And this goes back to the lifetime appointments. Um, I, I think that uh, if you you have to think about some kind of reform, so term limits, for example, question with the term limits is the you know the constitutional constraint on that. So if if justices in fact do have to serve for the for a lifetime, it's not clear they have to serve on the Supreme Court for a lifetime, right? Um, and so the 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 plans that have come forward, including from from previous justices that have talked about eighteen year rotating. Um, seats on the Supreme Court and then then to serve as a federal judge for life, for example, those plans would actually, I think, help depoliticize, right? Because you have to change the structure. It all connects together. So the fact that, um, and, and this all connects to other things. So I let me take one step back and say the gerrymandering and the campaign finance problems that we have are what's enabling and fueling the partisanship. Um, because you can't, if you have a competitive district, you cannot take extreme positions like that. You just can't. So if you did have competitive districts and you didn't have 80% of seats safe for either party, um, you wouldn't have this problem to begin with because you, I mean, you have another problem. You have people that are they're much more centrist, right? So you'll have a kind of centrist politics. But I think most people actually would prefer that than a kind of hyper-partisan politics. So because of the gerrymandering, because, again, we don't have a cap now really on contributions, and so you have uh, a lot of these interests being dictated not by individuals but, but by, by large organizations, that's shaping the interest, right, of of people who are running for president and then that's shaping that's now impacting who's being um, appointed Um, so it all trickles down together and so because because of that kind of because of all of those things that are happening right now um, in our system I think we need to think about well what could the reform be and and that's why reform becomes almost urgent now when it comes to the Supreme Court I mean what can we do to depoliticize the court that's within constitutional constraints right and so switching gears a little sort of narrowing in on uh, some ideas that might come to the Supreme Court in the next couple of years, even the next couple of months. Access to abortion in many states has been limited recently. What do you think is going to happen in terms of access to abortions 10 years from now? Do you think that the court is going to break with precedent from Roe versus Wade? Or do you think that they will respect the precedent or do something totally different? Yeah, no, that this is, again, where I think you keep your eye on the chief justice. 
um, because there, I mean, I think it's only one justice, Justice Thomas, who's who's openly come out and said, I, we should be overturning precedent. I don't think any of the other justices have openly said we need to overturn precedent. Now, remember, in our common law system, it's a big deal to overturn precedent. Um, and so the, ju- the justices know that. And, and, and Chief Justice Roberts has said that, right, that, that it creates a kind of instability in the system if you just openly you know, like overturn precedent and then, you know, do it sort of repeatedly. So I think they're wary of that. Um, Will there be restrictions? I mean, clearly there are already restrictions on on what originally, uh, you know, was decided in Roe versus Wade. Um, I don't know about overturning precedent altogether because, you know, again, I only there's only one justice who said we absolutely need to overturn the precedent it's different to to i mean other people will question well, will you restrict it to a level that it actually d- doesn't feel like there's a right anymore that's a different question than you know will the court overturn it and when it comes to directly overturning it again i think that even like those justices are that that are in the middle are are are, are concerned that you know precedent is still precedent um, and I'm, I'm not sure, I think there would be a, a, a response, you know, to that. And just in terms of the stability of the system, that's, you know, constitutionally, I know that's what Roberts has said, that, you know, it's not, you don't just, you don't just up and, uh, you know, upend precedent. So it'll be, an, it's, something to, it's something to keep following, though, um, because it has a lot of also popular attention around the issue. But, but um, as we were talking about before, not necessarily around the constitutionality, of the issue, which is what the court, I think, is going to be focused on. Right. And um, I guess just to bring a little more closer to home, uh, the Connecticut House of Representatives passed a bipartisan bill, I believe it was uh, Tuesday, April 19th, that would allow for people in, say, Texas or Idaho, where um, it's legal now in those states to have other people sue anyone who helps uh, someone get an abortion, that they would be able to sue for damages or compensation in Connecticut courts. Uh, that was passed on Tuesday, and I believe that Ned Lamont will pass it or sign into law in a couple of days. I guess just to kind of get your thoughts, do you think that this will be problematic that kind of states are going at each other while it's still, uh, in terms of the precedent from the Supreme Court, all of those bills in Texas and Idaho are still technically not okay? Do you think it's kind of a problem that is kind of compounding on itself? Or do you see this as sort of the best case scenario right now, given how polarized this whole issue is? I mean, yeah, this is always up to the state. So the Supreme Court is just, you know, is is putting... uh I guess would be a, a floor on whether or not you can actually have these restrictions. It still has been up to the, the problem is though if it's if it's only up to the states um, and it is in fact infringing on a fundamental right, um, that means that you're entitled to a right in one state and not another. And and so yes, I think states are states are always entitled, and they they often are entitled to grant more rights than are provided in the U.S. Constitution itself. So they can always provide greater protections. Um, but the, the question is, should that be a uniform policy? Um, because uh, otherwise you're, you know, yeah, otherwise you're, you're creating sort of a, a deprivation. And, and that this is particularly where the issue, the constitutional issue comes in of like, we're talking about a, fu- a fundamental right. And if we're talking about a fundamental right, which is under the right to privacy, um, you know, d- does that mean um, that some people are deprived of that in another state? Right. I do think it's interesting that, you know, you're seeing, um, just kind of an aggressive political response from Republicans right now um, in terms of abortion. And it's almost like they're, like we were talking about with politicizing the Supreme Court, they're kind of putting pressure on the Supreme Court saying, oh, we're doing this right now in Texas, we're doing this right now in Idaho. Um, you know, let's see what the Supreme Court does. And it's almost like they're enticing people to bring those laws and to challenge them in the court and bring that all the way up to the Supreme Court level to s- potentially see Clarence Thomas speak out and potentially see the justices who they feel are on their side potentially flip it. 
um, which that would be huge if that were to happen and obviously detrimental, like you were saying, for having trust and precedent. So I, I mean, this, this happens sometimes where you have multiple states sort of acting at the same time. Um, and the question for what reason will sort of keep aside. But th- this is where the court is, is so critical because the court is really the one that needs to step in and definitively say, right, and definitively define what the Constitution means um, because that will then stop Right, all of those. Right, when right. you when you leave something in sort of a, in limbo um, and this level of uncertainty, that's when you get all this litigation around it, um, and that's where the court's role is in fact really important to step in um, and say that. And yes, yeah, so the so you are the, there's trying there, there's a push to say oh, we want you to make a decision on this, and some people want it to be overturned, and some people are pushing hard on the other side to make sure that this precedent is. But this is where the court really has to step in and definitively say, here is what the right entails, um, and and that's, right, and then that operates as precedent. But I I think it's all this sort of, and and you're right, when you have people kind of questioning what the precedent is, that's when the court needs to come back and clarify, you know, this is is the precedent that we had in Roe versus Wade, here's the precedent that we're setting now, what is it? (laughs) And that's the court's, the court's responsibility is really to step in because that, that would then supersede all of the, all of the state um, uh, you know, or a lot of the state litigation on it. So I guess just for our final question, we're a little short on time here, um, but what do you think about the sort of clashing of political and legal ideas? Because we have things like abortion, and that's sort of tor- turned into a political topic, but while there's also the legal precedent in Roe versus Wade or or anything else, like h- how do you think those two things relate to one another and clash with one another? And if the precedent of Roe v. Wade is overturned, how do you think people will react to that? Yeah, that's a great question because um, there's there's a lot, and this is why I love teaching constitutional law because, and I always tell my students that you know we're going to have debates on the constitutionality of these issues, um, and those debates, again, like I said, those debates based on how one interprets the Constitution, I think, are actually really important debates to have because we can disagree on how the Constitution should be interpreted. I think sometimes when you take that out in a political context, you do get a clashing of ideologies, and that's that's a completely different debate, and it's it's on completely different grounds. In, in some ways, it's really a problem when the two get conflated because people will talk about constitutional rights but then have the ideological debate. I was like, but that's not that's not the narrow question that the, the court is answering when it talks about the constitutionality, um, even for something like the death penalty. You know, people have very strong feelings about it, but the constitutional question is actually a much narrower one. And and maybe being a constitutional scholar, that's the one I tend to focus on because I think it's important for us to sort of outline what that is. It's good in the sense that I think that people often stay away from talking about constitutional issues, even though everyone says they know the Constitution. Very few people actually engage in an actual debate on the Constitution. So again, they pull an ideology and say, oh, the Constitution supports my ideology. But actually, constitutional debates are really nuanced. You would be, it would be hard to sort of align a constitutional debate with a political debate uh, along party lines, because that's not how constitutional interpretation necessarily works. Um, and that's what I'd like to see people doing more often, because those debates, I think, are more interesting to, to think about how we can, how, you know, uh, like what the Constitution means in a particular context, I think is really important. Absolutely. Um, Professor Sujata Godkar Wilcox, thank you so much for joining us today, for being on the podcast with us. Uh, I guess we'll, we'll give you the, the final word today if there's anything else you, you want to add. No, thank you so much for having me. And, you know, um, I think having podcasts like this and making 
issues, political issues, uh, constitutional issues accessible to, to students, to the public. I mean, I just commend you for doing that because that is the really most, that's the way to get people involved in the political process is to make these issues accessible to them and then to have, to encourage them to have conversations. And that's exactly what you're doing. So thank you for having uh, this podcast. You know, I very much enjoyed being on it. Thank you. All right. So we had a very wide-ranging uh, conversation with Professor Godcar Wilcox. Um, I, one of the most Im- interesting things that struck me about her is that she's really heavily focused on uh, the trust in government and community politics, and it seemed like that was almost more important to her than the actual policies that she would bring to the House. I don't know what you thought about that. Yeah, she mentioned it a lot. Um, she brought up how her campaign strategy has been trying to form relationships, which I think is great, especially for a smaller um a smaller district that we're in and then just the smaller frame um, that she's focusing on. But at the same time, there wasn't a ton of focus from her. And again, short, short on time, but there wasn't a ton of focus on what she's bringing to the table as far as changing um, what her predecessor has done. And um, I think she makes a lot of good points about trying to fix polarization at the state level. I know from back home, um, the governor's race in New York right now is very tense between uh, Kathy Hochul and uh, I believe Lee Zeldman for the Republican Party. He's kind of the front runner right now. And it mirrors the national elections. It mirrors both Congress, uh, the Senate, it mirrors even the presidential election in a way, just how bitter it is between the two of them and just between both parties and the state level. And it's just gotten so much worse uh, in the last couple of months. So I do like that she brought that up. But like you said, there wasn't a ton of focus from her on uh, the policies that she would like to institute. Yeah, definitely an interesting take and maybe something different than uh, what we see in a lot of other mm-hmm. races around the country at every level state federal local whatever it may be she's also a a legal studies professor and her background is is, uh through law school and and so that's been a really big part Mm -hmm. of of her life and has really affected her campaign in a big way and she she sounded a little i don't know if fearful is the right word but just uh wary of the direction that the court is getting fearful of the definitely uh the politicization that the court is facing and will f- continue to face. Yeah, and I could see, um, just when we brought up, let me switch gears to the more um, national framework that she was very much so concerned about um, Chief Justice Roberts. That was kind of her focus and um, holding him to a standard. And I, you can almost tell that that's how she studied um, each sort of uh, time period in the court. And she was able to look at a justice and, or Chief Justice rather and how they ran the court and how they orchestrated uh, cases and kind of what happened under their tenure and I think just from her point of view is interesting because everyone talks about the Constitution when it benefits them and is willing to throw it out when it doesn't and she brought a really great point of having debates where you use what the Constitution has but potentially also expand on what the Constitution doesn't have and say well maybe in making this a more fluid adaptive document you know maybe we can throw this in at some point um, which I think is interesting because a lot of people sort of take it as gospel whenever it benefits them and they're willing to completely ignore it, toss out the window, burn it up when it doesn't. So it's definitely a very interesting perspective that I have not heard before, which is interesting. Yeah, and I, I completely agree. Um, and then we also touched on uh, access to abortion, uh, how that's come under attack in many states around the country, um, and the idea of it facing the Supreme Court in, in, in the future. And uh, she really talked about how she thinks that people are moving away from the idea of precedent and moving just towards the idea that it's a political topic, that it's it's something that is going to be hashed out in the legislature, 
uh, and that's how it should be rather than whether or not women have a right to that. Right. And uh, you bring a good point. Um, I do think that there is room for debate, especially given the topic and the way it's sort of developed since Roe v. Wade. But at the same time, the way it's been handled has been terrible, I think, especially by the opposing pro-life movement um, and seeing Roe v. Wade as a almost antithesis to what they're doing and not so much something that can be sort of discussed in, okay, this precedent exists. Now, if the, if the Supreme Court were to change that, what will the precedent be? Whereas their belief is, oh, abortion is uh, illegal and should be illegal in all contexts, regardless of con- regardless of reason, which obviously is not justifiable. It's not reasonable. Uh, the world's not perfect. And it seems like the movement's very focused on, oh, in a perfect world, there's never going to be an abortion again, which is just not possible. It's not going to happen. Um, so I think uh, from her point of view that she's brought up that if it becomes, if and when it already did become politicized, that if a conservative-leaning court overturns that precedent, which would be, like she said, an enormous uh, change, that that would set another precedent that any time anything is set in stone, theoretically by the court, it can just be reversed by a, say, more liberal-leaning court and vice versa. It just becomes a back-and-forth flip game, kind of like Congress is right now, where Republican-leaning Congress may pass a bill, and in three, four years' time, when it switches, even given a midterm election like we have this year, we'll see potentially a switch from the Democratic-leaning um, majority on both uh, the con- both House and the Senate might switch to Republican-leaning. And we'll probably see a bunch of legislation just get overturned or switched. And it will just become that in one of the three branches that, like she said, should not be politicized at all. It should be the check that allows for any political motion to be um, analyzed and reviewed in an, a non-biased, removed position. So it's definitely interesting, and I think her fear is justified, given all of that. Yeah, overturning a precedent, regardless of what the issue is, just opens a black hole of yes. who knows what is on the other side of that in every single aspect of our lives that either is or wasn't protected right. by the Supreme Court. So um, she had a really inter- interesting take on that. Yeah, and she definitely had a lot of experience to back it up. Uh, like you said, she went to law school. She's been teaching constitutional law. And, and I like she brought up that she's working with high school students and trying to get those conversations started earlier. I know from you know just my experience in high school, a lot of people would think they know a lot more about the Constitution than they really do. And a lot of those same people ended up flunking their AP Gov class, which talks all about the Constitution. So it's really interesting to see um, even just on that level and like she brought up that justices are referred to now as Republican and Democrat. Like that's not how it should be. Right. Ruth that's Bader Ginsburg was. was confirmed on a 96 to 3 vote, which is right. just unthinkable in today's world. Would never happen today. And it was because they were looking at her track record. And not even that. They were looking at her education. Is she qualified? Um, what has she done uh, legally, purely on the terms of what's right and what's wrong by law, not what's okay politically, not what she believes in personally. That's what they were looking at, and of course she was qualified. That's why the, the ratio was so high in favor of her. But now, even with uh, Jackson, who has that resume, has that experience, has that education, to put her in a position where she could have, in a perfect world or in a world of past, where she would have such a high ratio in favor of her, that's just not going to happen anymore because they're only focused on the theoretical D in parentheses next to her name that should not and does not exist. Yeah. It was a really great time talking with Professor yes. Godcar Wilcox. We're looking forward to having her on the show again sometime soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Lunchtime Legislation. Stay tuned for more. <laughs> <laughs>